Would you please turn your Bible with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses, uh, where we're reading verses 19 through the end of the chapter, looking specifically at verse 26 uh, to the end of the chapter. From Hebrews chapter 10, if just to remind you again, the writer has been uh, laboring to, uh, as he speaks to struggling Christians, people who are getting weary and reminding them of uh, the greatness of Christ as their high priest, the sacrifice that he's actually made. He's just seeking to shore up their faith and to sort of light a fire under them. They've become dull of hearing. They're dispirited. And uh, so uh, if, you're, if you need a, a fire lit under you this morning, well, that's what the book of Hebrews is about. That's what it's for. And so let's give our attention to the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 10. going to pick it up at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And it is then that uh, reality of a day that's drawing near the coming of Jesus Christ and all that, uh, that will be revealed then, that's what now moves him into this next train of thought, which is our text this morning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse, worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you that the word that was written, spoken, read to these Christians so many years ago is as mighty and powerful and relevant and necessary and useful and helpful today as it was then. Uh, for this is the very word of God. And I pray, O oh God, that you would speak to us then and la- allow us to hear and to respond in faith and uh, repentance if, re- if need be. Uh, Lord, that you would uh, do your beautiful saving work in this place, in our lives today, in Jesus' name, amen. I think I had about five different titles for the sermon uh, this morning, and what I finally settled on was living with heaven in view, because I think that's um, what the writer is after. Uh, how, what does it mean to live uh, with heaven and eternity and God in view? One of the uh, things I love about reading the Bible is that it, it teaches us, it trains our sight so that we, we notice things again that maybe have sort of blurred out of our vision, things that have slipped out of the horizon of our life. It's sort of like traveling. If you've traveled abroad, uh, you, you'll uh, know the joy of Meeting a culture that doesn't look like the American culture, that, that has different priorities, and, and those priorities impact the way people live. We were um, really blessed, Joanne and I, when we were uh, on sabbatical in Great Britain, and we spent some time in, uh, in Netherlands and in France, and just noticing that life feels different there. There's a, there's a different tone to it. People it's more relaxed. People ride their bicycles oftentimes or walk. Uh, if you go to the pub, it's just like a public living room and people will spend hours there just chatting with friends. Uh, there's a, there's, it's a much less hectic pace. Uh, we were in uh, Axan Provence in southern France and just walking around and the cafes, uh, all the tables that were many of them are outdoors and they're packed at 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the afternoon, with businessmen, businesswomen, uh, enjoying a very long, very leisurely lunch. And they can do that because the mandated week, work week in France is 35 hours. And so there's a, uh, some of you are saying amen to that. You see, there's different priorities. It's, it just seems like in Europe, uh, and maybe particularly in France, that people... Um, approach life, it's not something to be conquered, it's something to be enjoyed. And things like family and community and friends and food is something to be uh, enjoyed, not just knocked off the to-do list. Well, that that changes. See, those priorities change the way people think and live. And and the the gospel uh, brings us into a world, and scripture brings us into a culture where there are certain priorities and realities that are meant to impact the way that we live. Uh, that the reality of God becomes very big and real and meaningful and substantive in our life. And, and the reality of an eternity and a coming day becomes significant and has traction. And so when I read my Bible, I'm just convicted over and over again that the, uh, the world according to Scripture so often challenges and convicts the world according to Dale Van Dyke, the way that I actually live my life and the way that I see others living their life. 
Well, this is good for us. This is, uh, this is the grace of God to us, to give us uh, his scripture so we can see things as they really are. I, um, this morning, uh, as we come to Hebrews chapter 10, now we're wrapping up chapter 10. We're going to move into chapter 11. This is a letter that has a trajectory. The writer is speaking to people who are struggling. They're discouraged. Uh, it's gotten hard and heavy. And he's reminding them, you see, of the great things at stake. He's, he's reminding them, don't, don't lose your faith. Don't stop. Don't allow yourself, don't settle for being dull of hearing and slow of heart. Because remember, just the great things at stake, and remember that the God with whom we deal is a God who actually does judge his people. Uh, If you think back, and this is chapter 3 and 4, if you remember, back to Israel of old. And God called them out of Egypt, and they all came up out of Egypt. And he called them through the Red Sea, and they all came through the Red Sea. But they didn't all go into the land. Many of them, you see, fell away because of disobedience, because of unbelief. And so God was angry with them. And God says, they shall never enter into my rest. And the writer says, remember, that's the same God we're dealing with today. He has not changed. So the stakes are very high when it comes to the Christian faith. We have to, we have to uh, just once again let the, the word of God and the truth of God and the reality of God settle down upon us so that we can be encouraged to walk in a way so that we get the reward. That's what we're about this morning. Remember, he's uh, just now been talking about in the earlier part of chapter 10 about the wonderful reality of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so you'll find uh, as we began our text here, verses 19, there are three let us Three, uh, okay, here's a, here are the implications and the ramifications of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let us draw near to God with full assurance of faith. There's nothing lacking in the gospel. Jesus Christ has actually accomplished the forgiveness, the pardon of sin. Sin is dealt with sub- objectively, once for all, truly in the cross. It's not a story. It's not an idea that's meant to to move you in some way. It's an objective, historic reality. We talked about that. And since that is true, then run to God. The way is open. Draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Not because of anything in you, but because of everything that's true about Jesus Christ and the fact that our high priest now is at the right hand of God. Secondly, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. We haven't been saved for this life primarily. We've been saved for a hope, a conviction of a coming reality, something that's not seen if we see it, right, it's, 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 it's not hope, but we hope for what is unseen. And so hold fast the confession of our hope. And why would you do that? Because he who promised is faithful. Hold on. God is not going to let you go. God is drawing you into the glory of what is yet to come. So hold on to, the, to, to your hope. Uh, don't let that become something you sort of put in the, uh, in the cubby hole of your life. You still talk about cubby holes? Is that what, that's what we call the little box where you 
through everything you don't really need. Maybe you have those places, the, the, the junk drawer in the kitchen. Don't let, you, don't let your hope go there. Keep it right up front and center. Plastered on the fridge, plastered on the, the bathroom mirror. Because he who promises faithful. And then thirdly, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We're not doing this by ourselves. It's not just you and Jesus. It's you and everybody that's around you. Just look around. You're not here by accident. The church doesn't exist just incidentally. That you've been brought, if you're a Christian, into the body of Jesus Christ. You've been brought into the, the, the family here at Harvest Church. And so we have a responsibility to all the souls you see around you to encourage each other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're moving. The day's coming close. So there's an urgency here. We're not about little things. There's an incredible urgency. And that coming day, the reality of a coming day, when Jesus Christ returns and the, and the books are opened and the, 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 the judge takes his seat, that coming day is now what the writer has in mind as he reminds us, first of all, the seriousness of sin and judgment. That's our first point. The seriousness of sin. The seriousness of judgment. Verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, the first question that might come to your mind is, why is he talking to us like this? We're Christians. Why is he talking to the New Testament church about judgment, about fury of fire? Why does he say things like in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God? That's a good message for unconverted people, for, for the world out there. But you, you don't want to bring that into the church. Well, he does. And these verses, if you're honest, are verses that are a bit disconcerting. If we go on sinning deliberately, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Do you ever sin deliberately? Boys and girls, do you ever do uh, what you know you shouldn't do and you, you, you do it even while you know you shouldn't be doing it? Isn't that why you hide behind the couch to draw on the wall? <clears throat> what, what, what's going on there, boys and girls? Well, it's exactly the same thing going on with mom and dad. Uh, we do sin deliberately. We sin, the, the King James Version is willfully. So the writer here, what's he saying? Is he saying if you sin deliberately, you can't be, you can't be forgiven? Well, he can't be saying that. It would run against the grain of, the, of all of Scripture. Think about King David. Who deliberately, well, you, you could say maybe he fell into sin with Bathsheba, but he did not fall into murdering uh, her husband. He deliberately did that. Uh, if you think about Peter, he maybe stumbled the first time he denied knowing Jesus Christ, but time, but number two and number three, I think he knew exactly what he was doing. He did it deliberately. He counted the cost, and he still went ahead. And yet, you see, these great sinners were greatly forgiven. Why? Because they confessed their sin and they, 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 they did repent and, and they were forgiven their sin. 
Now, the Bible has many amazing examples and proofs of the fact that there is no sin that, that is not able to be forgiven, no, no matter what it is. doesn't matter how awful. Murder, theft, um, uh, you name it. You'll find in Scripture multiplied examples of people who committed those very things who were forgiven. The only sin, you see, in Scripture that cannot be forgiven is the sin of obstinate unbelief and unrepentance. It's the only sin that cannot be forgiven. Obstinate unbelief and unrepentance. So Jesus, as he goes on his way to the cross, comes to Jerusalem, and, he, and the Bible says he weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who stoned the prophets, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but what? You would not. You refused. And Jerusalem then came under the judgment of God. God's people came under the judgment because of obstinate unbelief. And you see, that's what the author's writing. Notice he doesn't say, if we sin deliberately, he says, if we go on sinning deliberately, if that is, uh, if that is an, an obstinate, committed pattern of our life, we go on sinning um, deliberately, then, he says, there's no sacrifice for sin left. This is why most uh, commentators believe that what he's talking about here is, is what we call apostasy. It's, uh, it's a turning away from Christ, turning away from the life of following Christ. Calvin says, uh, the author is directing his attention to those who desert Christ in their unbelief and so deprive themselves of the benefits of his death. The writer's been talking about apostasy from time to time throughout the book. If you remember chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4, he reminds them that not everybody who came out of Israel went into the, uh, who came out of Egypt went into the land of promise. Some fell by the wayside, and God says, they'll never enter into my rest. And he says, don't you be like that. Don't fall away because of your disobedience. Chapter 4, verse 11. You see, the, the writer has a, has a a deep concern for this congregation that he's, that he's writing to, these people he's, to whom he's, he's writing. He's a, he has a deep concern that he wants them to understand is not uh, unmerited or, or, is, or is a falsely based concern. He says, no, it is possible for people to fall away. And it's an awful thing to fall away because, you see, notice what it involves, verses 26 and 27. It means that for those, the consequences are these. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Imagine being in a world or living your life and being convicted of sin and there's nothing to do about it. Being convicted of the judgment of God, that you, have, you had sinned against him. And that he was just in pronouncing his sentence of judgment upon you. And there was nothing to be done. There was nowhere to go. You, you could go to person after person after person and tell your story and try to have them assure you. But, but there was actually no atoning sacrifice to which you could appeal. There was no cross for you. 
Well, he's writing that those who go on deliberately in unbelief and sin, that's exactly the case. There's no, there's no, there's no sacrifice left there. There's no atoning blood for unbelief. Do you understand that? There's no atoning blood for unbelief. There's no atoning blood for committed unrepentance. Not as long as you stay there. There's a fearful prospect of judgment. He says that, that's, that's all that's left, is a, is a fearful prospect of the judgment of God. A fury of fire. If you think, well, it, it probably won't be that bad. Well, he just reminds you, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Fiery indignation. It's the unleashing of all of God's moral vengeance against all that is evil. It's not just God being upset uh, or being mad, but, but it's the necessary outrage of a holy God against everything that offends his goodness and his holiness and love. The, the, the writer here is not afraid to say, our God is a consuming fire, chapter 12. Our God is a consuming fire. Now, why would God be so upset? Well, notice he talks about the sinfulness of the sin in verses 28 and 29. So we've seen the consequences, verses 26, 27. Now we have the, the, the sinfulness of it. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? And he says, you're, you're bright people. Figure this out. Put it together. Add it up. If that was what was uh, the penalty for, uh, for violating the law of Moses, which was a shadow pointing ahead to things to come, just a school teacher to lead us to Christ, if that's what happened then, then, then you put two and two together. How much worse do you think punishment is deserving to those who do these three things, despise the Son of God. Despise the Son of God means that it's, it's not simply um, that you broke a law, but it's your finger in God's face because of your unbelief and unrepentance. It's a despising, a scorning of God. Jesus, the Son of God, a profaning of his blood. The word here means to, to profane something. It means to say it, it is of no value. It's common. It, it, it's, it's, you can just throw it out in the street. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And, and, and the writer here says, well, when, we, when, when there's obstinate unbelief and unrepentance, we're profaned by Christians. You see, people who profess to be Christian, people who, who profess that they've come under the, the blood of the covenant. They've entered into the covenant Well, when you walk in unbelief and unrepentance, you, you, you profane that, and you outrage the spirit of grace. Do you ever think of God as being outraged? Have you ever considered that? Well, the writer does. The spirit of grace, the spirit who's, who's been given to apply to you all the grace and goodness of, and the kindness of God. And, and when, when we live in unrepentant unbelief, we outrage the spirit of grace. Now, just quickly, two things I'd like to point out, I mean, and just apply. I think, wouldn't you agree that we do not take apostasy very seriously at all? It just, on the, on the category of things that we're concerned about, or, 
either for ourselves or for other people. We worry about all sorts of things. I don't think we worry much at all about apostasy. It's sort of a hypothetical category. Maybe you've heard the word. You have a sense of what it means. But it's a, it's a hypothetical category that nobody really inhabits. It's sort of like unicorns and mermaids. It's a, it, yeah, it's a, you have an idea of it, but nobody's actually in it. Well, no, no. Apostasy is a real category inhabited by real people. People who used to walk with the church and confess faith in Jesus Christ. Rob Bell began his ministry as an evangelical pastor, believing this was the uh, infallible word of God a mile down the road. And now he hangs out with Oprah and professes her religion and writes a book that says this is not the infallible word of God. This is just a bunch of uh, spiritual, religiously minded people writing about their experiences of the divine as they conceived it. You see, friends, that's, that's apostasy. That's apostasy. You don't get to deny Jesus as the only Savior of sinners by faith alone in his work alone. You don't get to deny that. You don't get to deny that this is the, the living, breathing, enduring word of God and be saved. There is such a thing as apostasy. People apostatize. People once professed one thing and now they profess something else or, or, or their lifestyle professes something else. People do fall away from obedience to Christ. They just say, it's, it's too hard. I'm not doing this anymore. Or I found a better way. Or I've just decided, frankly, that um, I'm going to sort of make up my own religion. And I'm going to make up my own rules. And I still believe in God. And I, I'm sure he believes in me. And, uh, the, and I, I believe that God, that God still loves me. But, but his, I'm going to live, even though this says to do one thing, I'm going to do another thing because it frankly just suits me. <clears throat> That's apostasy. That's apostasy. The writer just wants to remind his, his audience that there is such a thing as people falling away. Now, you might say, well, that challenges our Calvinistic doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Well, you go ahead, let it challenge it a bit. There's an answer for that. But don't use the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints as a, as a, a shield to guard you from all the warnings that are right in front of you in Scripture. You see, when... when, when when someone is, was ex, is excommunicated from the church for unrepentant sin, do you understand that means they've moved into a Hebrews 10 category? We, nobody gets excommunicated because of sin. Do you understand that? Nobody gets excommunicated because of sin. People only get excommunicated because of unbelief and unrepentance. That's it. So, so if that's the case, oh, let it break your heart. Someone's moved into the category of Hebrews 10. Now, we believe that God you know, uses the means of grace and discipline being one of them to wake people up and to call them back because that's what we're doing. In excommunication, we're just saying uh, whatever you had professed, um, 
or what you profess now doesn't match up with this, or how you're living now doesn't match up with this. We just want to break through the charade. We want to break through the deceit or, or, or the, 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 the illusion that you may have that what you're believing now or what you're doing now is actually biblical Christianity. That's all we're doing. And because that doesn't match up with this, therefore we cannot allow you to come to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ as though you believed it. Oh, friends, it, apostasy happens. So we need to wake up to it. But why is he telling them about it? Well, that's the second thing. We need to wake up to the, the reality of God as he is. There's a constant temptation to downplay the severe aspects of God. I've been, have you ever read through Deuteronomy recently? Have you read through your Old Testament? You'll find there a, a serious God who brings judgment because he's holy and he's, and he's righteous. He's a consuming fire. And there's a constant tendency for us to, you see, to, to just blunt those edges. We, we believe in the good news. Well, friends, the good news has a context. And the context is the wrath of God. The context is the judgment of God. You see, if your only category for God is grace, if that's the only category you have for God, you don't understand grace. You don't understand God. And if that's all you teach or preach, you will literally blind people to the actual truth of God and you will deaden their ears to any meaningful warnings concerning judgment. You can just take Hebrews chapter 10 and pull it out of your Bible. Because he's writing about a God who judges his people. He's writing about a God who has fiery indignation. Howell Jones in his commentary says, if, in the real, if the real world that God has created includes the reality of divine judgment and vengeance and, and terrifying wrath, then honesty and love and wisdom will all include warnings of danger, not just promises of blessing. We just have to talk about the real God when we talk about God. Now, notice he doesn't stop there. He's not accusing them. He's just reminding them. He's not judging them. He's not rebuking them. He's not even admonishing them. He's just reminding them of the realities and then calling them onto the glories. And that's our second point, and we'll wrap up. The, the liberating power of faith and better possession. So he says to them, remember the former days, verse 32? Recall the former days where there were two great realities. Uh, you were enlightened and you endured. That was your experience. The truth of God had broken in finally, and you saw the wonder of the gospel, the truth of your sin, the wonder of what Christ had accomplished, and you were enlightened, and you endured hard struggle. Persecution had happened. And he says, sometimes uh, you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes you were partners with those who were so treated. You visited people in prison. To visit people in prison in those days was to, right, nobody in the prisons, um, family members had to bring food and medical supplies and anything you needed. Uh, the prison provided nothing. So Christians would identify themselves as Christian when they're going to visit brother or sister so-and-so in prison. And there would be a cost. There would be public reproach and affliction. I saw a photo about a month ago, and maybe I told you about this already. It just really struck me 
a, a Pakistani couple on a platform just like this, facing a crowd just like that. And there's a man standing right here with a great big uh, stick and beating them. And this is a Christian couple who had been accused of something um, by a, a quote-unquote neighbor, a Muslim neighbor. And, um, and so they're just being uh, punished. And, and the faces of everybody in the photo that, I, that you could see, there was no uh, sympathy. There was, uh, there was no concern. There was nothing but um, being entertained, a scorn, uh, judgment. And, and I thought to myself... Uh, these are their neighbors. These are the people they work with. These are the people they shop with. They go to the park, and, and, and these are the people they live with. How would your faith do in that context? Well, he's writing, um, that's what happened to them, and, and, and amazingly, they didn't shrink and shrivel. <laughs> they, they flourished. They didn't just have compassion on their brothers and sisters. They had risk-taking compassion where they were willing to step out and, and, and be known as a Christian knowing that it was going to cost them, and it did cost them. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. That's just one of the most astounding, contrary to human nature, statements in all of Scripture. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. You see, it's exactly the plundering of things that we fear. And that keeps us from moving and engaging uh, those in need. Maybe a needy neighbor or, or, or friend. Maybe uh, uh, you're thinking about adoption or fostering, and, but there's, there's fear about financial security and emotional um, uh, upheaval. And the burden maybe of, of, of entering the need of that child. Maybe the, the idea of mission. Uh, there's the fear of diseases and fear of leaving family and comforts. You see, there's all sorts of things that make us afraid of losing things. So America culture is defined by fear. So why weren't these people afraid? How in the world could they joyfully accept the plundering of their possessions? Well, Piper says this. This is utterly against the way humans are by nature. We love safety and comfort and ease and fun and lots of possessions and money and free time to do what we want to do. Don't you love those things? I do. And if we get these things, we rejoice. And if we don't get them, we complain. But here are people who rejoice when they lose possessions and enter into suffering. The question is, how do we become the kind of people who break out of apathy and throw off the need for ease and plenty and risk our possessions and our lives in the cause of love and good deeds? Isn't there something in you that wants to be freed from fear and Freed from your bondage to yourself and your possessions. Just free to let it go if that's what God would, would call you to do. A person who's just not afraid to take a stand in the world for Christ. Not afraid to invite somebody to church. Not afraid to invite somebody into your home. We just Fear just stops being it's such a predominating uh, reality in your life. How does that happen? Well, the answer is right in front of us. Chapter 30, verse 34b he says, they did this, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because you knew that you yourselves, not somebody else, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You say they knew something. That's what freed them from the fear. They were convinced of something. That, that they themselves had a better possession. 
Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. I mean, what is it? It's a 99 Tahoe. You want it? Keys are in the, I probably shouldn't say that over live stream. <laughs> Keys are in it, right? Let goods and kindreds go. The house, all right. We just remodeled. The kitchen looks nice, but it's, it's God's. Your time, your toys. What matters? What matters, you guys, is what matters is I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. We're living for something more. We're living for a better possession. We're living for an abiding possession, something that can never be taken away, something that is inestimably more valuable than anything this world has. You see, this is what they knew, and this freed them to live in, in this world, this very world that we live in, with all the same temptations that we face. This enabled them to live with, with fearless faith, with joy, with gladness. What, what, how, how did they come to this conviction? Well, the, the answer simply is, is they came to it by faith. And not some really miraculous, outrageous, bold faith. They came to it uh, because they simply believed what God said. And that's what the writer points to, verses 37 and 39. My righteous shall live by faith. That's, that's the key. We're not of those, verse 39, who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith. You know, we marvel at the lifestyle of these people, but they would just marvel right back in that moment. They would marvel right back. Well, we have better possessions. You see? They believed it. <clears throat> the reason their lifestyle seems so, seems so amazing is just because we're not accustomed to it. But it's, it's just faith. And the writer is going to go on now in Hebrews chapter 11, and he's going to teach us about faith functioning biblical faith. And we're going to see that the most amazing things happen in the presence of faith. A, a barren old woman by the name of Sarah has a baby. By faith, the writer says. And a whole nation walks through an ocean on dry ground. By faith, the writer says. And a city that was impenetrable named Jericho, all the walls collapsed to the ground by faith. Is what the writer says. And you might think, yeah, but I don't have right, that faith. We'll say, Lord, increase my faith as though I need more of a, some certain substance. The disciples said that to Jesus, if you remember in Luke chapter 17. They said, Lord, increase our faith. You remember what he said? If you had the faith of a, of, of a mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be gone, be moved, and it would move. Some hyperbole, but what he's saying, you see, is it's not you need more of something, you just need the real something. We need pure faith, simple faith, genuine faith. Because genuine faith is this what God has said, I believe. And not believe in some generic, esoteric, hypothetical, um, intellectual assent way, but if God has said it, that actually defines. My reality, not my circumstances, not my fears, not my intuitions, um, what defines my life, what defines my reality is the very word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's biblical faith. And we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 11, that's how the saints live. 
They live with a conviction of things not yet seen. Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. I'm looking forward to getting into Hebrews chapter 11 with you. Friends, I'm convinced this is at the root of of the struggles, the, the, the discouragements, the disappointments, the fears of our life. What do we actually believe? I was talking with someone a while back about another, uh, some folks who were uh, experiencing some great trials and, and were doing amazingly well. And uh, in fact, I was talking to Pastor Wayne. That's what it was. I was talking to Pastor Wayne about it. And he, and he just marveled. And he said, that's just amazing. I said, yeah, I don't, I don't know how they do that. I think, I think, I said this facetiously just so nobody freaks out. I said, I think they believe like God is sovereign. Yeah, they did. They do. That's what we profess to believe. It's not how we so often live. You believe God is sovereign. You believe God is good. You believe God is faithful. Do you believe he's accomplishing Jesus Christ everything you could never accomplish yourself? Do you believe that this life is passing? Do you believe a day is coming? Do you believe that on that day uh, you will be welcomed because of what Jesus has done? Do you believe that heaven is actually yours forever and no one can take it away from you? What do you believe? What do you actually believe? And take that, you see, take those realities into the reality of your life. Let me just close to a word to the unconverted. Friend, I just want, I'm so thankful you're here. I just want to remind you there is a God that is this God. There is a day that is coming, a day of judgment for those who don't know him, a day of incredible ecstasy and bliss for those who do. And, and if you don't know where you are in regards to that day or this God, I would just plead with you to come to faith in Jesus Christ, the one that God has sent into this world for sinners just like you and just like me. The promise you see stands, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you need to come and talk to someone, come and talk to me. You can talk to just about anybody here, and they'd love to help you. Let me just give a quick word to apathetic, compromised Christians. And maybe you've just sort of settled into God is not really something to, someone to be feared in a, in a godly sense, that your sin is fine, it's not that big a deal. Your pattern, your lifestyle, your commitments that are not in keeping with the word of God is not something you need to worry about, friend. I, the Lord judges his people. This is, a, this is a word for Christians. Don't stay. Don't stay in your apathy. Don't stay in your apathy. Jesus does say, Many will say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. For those who are maybe just hectic, fearful, discouraged believers, just open your eyes to all that God has promised you in Jesus Christ. And my friend, then let's encourage each other to believe it. Let's encourage each other to believe it. Let's not just complain together and sympathize with each other. We can bear each other's burdens, but the best thing we can do is remind each other of what's true. We actually have a sovereign God. We actually have a, a, a loving Savior, Jesus Christ. We actually are heirs of everlasting life. We are the most blessed people in all the world. Let's live like it. Let's live like it. Amen. Well, God in heaven, I thank you for your gospel. Oh, I thank you that you are a God who is worthy of fear and trembling and yet love and adoration. Father, uh, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot give ourselves faith. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do that.
Lord, there's so many souls presented in this room this morning. And every single one of us will stand someday before Jesus Christ. And we'll give an account for what have we done with the Christ. Oh God, I pray that by your grace today we could say we believed in him. And our heart's desire was to love him and to serve him and to follow him. And we're learning that the things of this world are all passing away. But the glories that belong to us in Christ never dim, never fade. And one day we're going to enter into it, all by your power and grace. Father, I I just pray that our faith would more and more impact our life. That we actually live by the things we profess. And Lord, we pray your blessing then on that. That our life would honor you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.